Okay, uh, welcome to Project A+. My name is Hugh. I'm joined by Hunter. Is that right? I want to say, I think I think my name is Mason. Could be wrong. Mason. Mason Dixon. Sorry, Mason Dixie. Mason okay. Dixie? Mason. Mason Dixie Hunter. That's your full name, right? Yep. You mean not the Mason Dixon Islands? It's a line in America. Yep. What does it mean? Uh, it's... It divides the South from the North. Yeah, wow. It's weird that you know that. Nailed it. I guess you did study American music when you were in college. I wrote about American music as as my thesis, but I technically studied the civil rights movement. I bet your thesis is great. I just wanted to write about music, right? <laughs> <laughs> when I started at this university, which my brother also studied at. Mm-hmm. What was it called again? La Trobe. La Trump University. <laughs> Trump you. They shut down the music department. So there's literally no music department at all. I wouldn't have studied like, you know, composition or like practical music stuff, but I might have studied like the history of music or something. I don't know what I would have done, but I just wanted to write like just about music I liked. I kind of couched it in like the new school of history that is more about narrative and less prescriptive and analytical, which is like an excuse. To write about nothing. Yeah, exactly. So, like, it was, like, me just picking a few moments throughout the um, 60s, in fact. Yeah, that's when the civil rights movement happened. Good job. No, like, it started in the 50s. I mean, I mean, it started, it's arguable when it actually started, yeah. but the modern civil rights movement. Um, but anyway, I, I, I chose, like, a few markers in the 60s based around um, three songs, I think. And then I just discussed how they related to the civil rights at the time and all that sort of stuff. But there was a funny point in which I talked about the song. There's like a 60s protest song called The Eve of Destruction. And it's like your nightmare of what you think the worst type of protest 60s song is. It's like that's the personification of it is this song called Eve of Destruction. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, in retrospect, I guess it, it has attained maybe a camp charm <laughs> for its earnestness. But it's terrible. It's like a really shitty version of a Bob Dylan song and I had these sections of like the thesis that veered into opinionated music criticism <laughs> essentially <laughs> so I had this line where I like dismissed that entire song as um Dylan gone bad or something like that and one of the people who reviewed my thesis because I think it has to be peer-reviewed for the final grade or whatever right, right. <clears throat> one of the lecturers or faculty members was like present at rallies in America in the 60s where that song was used. So he was like offended by my dismissal. But anyway. Maybe you should have protested with a better song. This week on the show, we'll be discussing the uh, 2018 romantic science fiction film, Zoe. Are you sure it's Zoe and not Zoe? Zoe sounds right to me. I feel like if I read that name on like a letter or something, I'd, I'd call it Zoe. It certainly looks like Zoe, but... As you discover through watching this charming film, it's actually pronounced Zoe. Maybe it's because he's French. Because Leia said, say do. <laughs> Leia? <laughs> How do you pronounce her name? They just... We, I don't know. It's got, no, but it's got a, it's got an accent on the E. Oh, does it really? Yeah. So. But I feel like Leia isn't right. <laughs> Leia? How else would you say it? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like cafe? Leia? Ca- Leia? Wait, I'm going to listen to it. Listen to, like, her pronouncing her own name. Just keep on talking. Just vamp for a while. Alright. So we'll be discussing the uh, 2018... Yeah, it's Leah. Yes. Not Leah. Anyway. So, Leia Seydoux. Leah. No, like the Star Wars character. Leia. 
Leia say what? <laughs> Leia sourdough. Christine Aggie what now? I'm going to say uh, Leia sourdough again. Just to, it. <laughs> just to make sure we keep that audio. Yep, yep. Just a clean, a clean bit of audio. I'm just going to keep on saying it. I was actually really sick a couple of days ago. I, I remember you mentioned that. Yeah. But that was not, like, self-inflicted. No. I may have gotten food poisoning, but I threw up me, like, ten times or something like that. Like, all through the night? Yeah. Yeah, I woke up at, like, one o'clock, and then I was like, you have to start throwing up now. And then I did for several hours, <laughs> and then I stopped. But I also had a really terrible headache. Do you get that post-vomit catharsis? Yeah, It's actually quite satisfying. Yeah, same thing with pooing. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely not the same thing i i have a similar feeling when i have like bad diarrhea or something like that and it's like really painful and i could have finished i'm like yes i've gotten through this this is very satisfying i've successfully navigated my my bowel problems yeah. but i think i i have like i diagnosed ibs or something like that because I, I have a lot of pain associated with feeling Sometimes. Cool. Yeah, cool. I know. Cool. Alright, so we're gonna talk about movies. Speaking of <laughs> painful shit <laughs> <laughs> We should move on to the Oh it wasn't that bad. <laughs> it was worse than that. Does it count as an Amazon Prime original? I think it's just an Amazon an Amazon Prime exclusive. I think they yeah, I think they acquired it. I don't think they produced it. I mean, Ridley Scott produced it. <laughs> he did. For some reason. So it's a Scott-free production, but it really should have been a Scott hands-on production. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> he works with um, Amazon a lot, actually. Does he? Yeah, like, like a lot of their original series, or a decent number of them are Scott productions. Scott-free. Yep. Um, so, so... He... So... <laughs> Was that your Theo James impression? No. It sounded it kind of sounded like him. Anyway, go ahead. Tell me about Zo. I've already forgotten everything about it. You you hurt my feelings, Zo. <laughs> that wasn't bad. So Zo, as as I've endeavoured to explain, is <laughs> a movie. <laughs> Did we even say what the two films were? No, I only said I only ended up saying Zo, and we kept getting distracted by the name. So let me let me do that chunk again. <laughs> that's that's it's forty three unusable <laughs> minutes. Like uh, we talked about this before, we definitely need to start releasing a good nonsense podcast. It's just all the bad bits. Off cut. Yep, yep. Nothing is wasted. It's like it's like the philosophy of uh, ethical butchers. Yeah, you know, yeah. tail to snout. We're the we're the ethical butchers. Of the <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Let's let's uh, okay. Let's let's get out. Let's do a restaurant here. <laughs> Imagine if you were doing this podcast for money. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Okay, so so this week on the podcast, we'll be talking about the 2008 sci-fi film that was distributed by uh, Amazon Prime, Zoe, and the 2016 erotic psychological thriller, which is how Wikipedia describes it, directed by Park Chan-wook, The Handmaiden. Yes, um, the only connection between these two films is that actually in America, The Handmaiden was distributed by uh, Amazon as well. Oh, right. And in Australia, it was distributed by Netflix. So shall we begin by discussing Zoe? Drake Doremus' Zoe. 
So Zoe is set in an unspecified point in the future, as far as I could discern. And it stars Ewan McGregor as uh, some sort of robotics engineer named Cole, who is working on creating uh, humanoid robots who can potentially approximate human emotions and act in an indistinguishable manner to actual humans while also possessing certain advantages. So it's also established that Cole has gone through a difficult divorce from Rashida Jones. Um, I, I guess I should be consistent and not call one person by the character name and another person by an actor. No, you anyway, so let's just say you're McGregor. Then. <laughs> so you McGregor is going through a difficult time and we get various scenes that establish his loneliness and his search for meaningful connection with someone or something else, which is, you know, kind of ironic because he's working on... Now, uh, one of his workers, or apparently one of his workers, is called Zoe and is played by Leah Sourdough. (laughs) I'm going to remove your uh, workshopping of that joke (laughs) earlier in the podcast. You're taking my... My authorship away from me, god damn it. So, Leah Saldo is initially set up as a worker in this company, um, which in addition to robotics, also uses data analysis to give couples a probability of compatibility or something. No, it's how a probability of their relationship like working out for a long term. So, we'll... we'll guide couples through this process where they answer questions uh, about one another and themselves and that gets fed into a machine and put through an algorithm and it spits out a number as to whether they're a good match or not what original and imaginative name does this process have you i actually can't remember (laughs) it's called the machine (laughs) okay cool i feel like i feel like that's like a first draft like like he like wrote something like in uh parentheses like Come up with a better name later, and then like, he forgot to do it in the, the like on the studio. He's like, "Oh God damn it!" Well, can't change it now. Oh, the machine, which I think is like, is that a really great symbol for like how humans are removing the humanity from the dating process? You because know? mm, they're giving yeah. themselves over to the machine. <laughs> okay, so it becomes apparent that uh, Zoe has developed a crush on Ewan McGregor's character. Not Ewan McGregor, he's the character. <laughs> no, he he's played himself. <laughs> and you, you did neglect to mention that the company that both Ewan McGregor and uh, so. Leia Sourdough <laughs> work for <laughs> is developing robots uh, specifically to be like companions for lonely people. <laughs> That's what the they're making him like robot stars, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, continue. the perfect companion. And the 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 newest generation of these uh, is a man played by Theo James, who is a bland white guy. <laughs> uh, the perfect the perfect man. <laughs> so the, yeah, Theo James and Leia Sourdough, uh, it transpires, are the prototypes um, of these humanoid companions. Um, now. Sourdough, Zoe, <laughs> does not realize that she is a robot until Ewan McGregor slash Cole reveals it to her 
after she has confessed her feelings for him. The, the, the deranged maniac who one moment thinks he's actor Ewan McGregor. Anyway, so from that central premise, it then turns into a love story between Ewan McGregor slash Cole and Sourdozo. But can he love a robot? Can he get past the fact that it is essentially an incestuous relationship? <laughs> Well, it really is. This is this is why it's creepy. So the way the film plays out, and this seems to be the intent of the creative team behind the film, is that it will be a touching story. You know, there'll be complications. He'll be grappling with the nature of what it is to be human and whether he can... You, have you heard of this movie called uh, Blade Runner? Submit to... Yes. <laughs> whether he can submit to falling in love with his creation. Yeah. So it takes the movie Blade Runner... Removes it from a... Well, I mean, because this is kind of a dystopia. <laughs> dystopia run by indie music. Which is definitely a dystopia in my book. And makes Tyrell uh, the villain of the movie Blade Runner. <laughs> it's the main character. It makes him fall in love with the, one of his robot creations. It's almost like... So the, the thing is, like, if you go along with the film's contention that that this person is a legitimate life form mm. by the end, right? Mm-hmm. Then it is literally like incest. It's like literally designing your your daughter and then and then getting in a relationship with her, like designing every part of it. So I mean, I mean that's so that's the premise, and that's how the the rest of the film plays out as this this love story. And, you know, some other stuff happens. Not a great deal happens. It's really just about these two people. No, it's a lot of lot of uh, seeds of people talking. In what should be romantic dialogues, which are just like boring conversations stitched together with uh, generic <laughs> indie music, which is which is insufferable. The only like moral issue that he faces is the fact that he has difficulty accepting her as a as a real uh, life form. I guess. Yeah, the the ethical dilemma of am I going to uh, get into a relationship with something that I made is not something that the film ever no. deals with at all or brings up in any sense. In fact, every everyone encourages him to be in a relationship with her. Yes, that's <laughs> the, the encouragement from the third parties is what is the most baffling about this. Like, I mean, I can imagine him fooling himself and not thinking about it in, in the terms that we've discussed. But, like, his ex-wife, Rashida Jones, is like, go for it. Like, I thought, like, when he would introduce, like, her to his ex-wife and, like, her family, that would be, like, a really uncomfortable scenario and she'd be like are you sleeping with your robot? And he's like, no, no, she's real. <laughs> but if she's like, fuck your robot. No, he's like, and she's like encourages him after it's he weird. breaks up, after he like separates with her. And she's like, no, get over it. Be happy. It's great. Uh, this is un- somewhat unrelated, but uh, I was kind of reminded watching this movie of, uh, there's this Japanese uh, hentai. You know what hentai is, right? Yes, I do. Sort of famous... Uh, Manga I've artist. got like five tabs open right now. <laughs> you're jacking it right as we speak. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sort of sound effect right here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, not, not, not masturbation folly for the next episode. Um, anyway, um, uh, there's this, this hentai artist who uh, exclusively wrote like sister brother, like romantic pairings, right? And it was always like the sister attempting to seduce her brother. And there's, a, there's a great interview with. Uh, the the artist's like actual sister about this. <laughs> she's like, yeah, this guy, he's just a creep. I don't talk to him anymore because he keeps on making these <laughs> these weird hentai. 
<laughs> so it sounds like Drake Dorvis is trying to justify to himself why he should be in love with like a sex doll that he also made. Uh, anyway, so so. So the the style of this film is like sort of sub malic garbage, where it has like the director sort of clipping clipping together footage uh, with like a really shallow focus. Uh, with a blurred background and tactile touches between characters and all that sort of stuff. and No voiceover, though. Pretentious music. There's some voiceover. There's bits of voiceover. But it's more It's more narrative. It's not It's not as elliptical as, as Malik would have it. Malik. <laughs> it, it actually, even more specifically, felt a little bit like what uh, Shane Carruth was going for in Upstream Colour at points. Yeah, I was reminded of that, too. But without a single compelling idea at the centre of it. And that inescapable creepiness of the romance itself that's supposed to carry this thing along. Yeah, there's not even, like, I mean, uh, Ushikar is just such a great sense of, like, abstraction and dread, right? And it, it doesn't, it it, reveal, it only reveals its cards to the audience uh, very gradually, but more of this film is just, like, you could tell what it wants to tell you and what the emotional beat it wants to, like, convey to you, like, really obviously, like, immediately. <laughs> it just keeps on hitting that over and over again, and you just know that conclusion is going to happen the way it is like based on the opening frames you can see how this this plays out like at a certain point i was like now she's going to get into some sort of accident and she gets hit by a car straight away <laughs> i did like how, how how random it was i was literally thinking at that point i was like well there's there's no other place for this to go like she needs to get there needs to be some accident here uh, okay so they've they've gone together so there has to be something that drives them apart like it's just like there's like 40 minutes after this movie so there has to be something so to go along with this lyrical style it's going for it's clear that they've encouraged uh, or drake doremus more specifically has encouraged the actors to improvise to a certain extent yes and, you know, like, hey, bond with one another in this scene and, you know, I'll just shoot and we'll see what happens and then we'll find the scene in the edit, as, as maybe Malik would phrase it. Which, like, annoyed the, the tits off me. <laughs> just <laughs> Yeah. The, the scenes that were supposed to be cute between Ewan McGregor and Sourdough. Oh, they're so <laughs> awful. <laughs> unbearable. And the improvisation makes it worse. Uh, so, uh, subplot that, I guess it's a subplot that turns into a main plot, or a... Uh something that drives the main plot of this film, which is uh, really bizarre and hilarious, is that um, Ewan McGregor's company, while also doing the the sort of dating app thing and the uh, uh, robot people who will replace humans, <laughs> the, another side business that they have, which is just, like, sort of inexplicable. I, I don't understand how this company is, like, successful at all, <laughs> considering that all their businesses are just, like... It's, like, theme-based versus, like, how actual companies to organize which is like <laughs> yeah it doesn't it doesn't make sense that it's the one company yeah. that does like chemical manufacturing yeah. robotic engineering matchmaking it's like yeah. insane but um one of their side projects which is introduced in the film uh in a scene that made me want to die <laughs> because and to use this song that i actually like which is a beach house song and uh, i think beach house is a band that i like a lot but i think when they're in movies it's always terrible <laughs> uh because they do have sort of that like gauzy indie uh, quality, which I think when you listen to it by yourself, it's like, okay, this is fine. When you put it to like imagery, it can be a little annoying, I think. What particularly annoys me, and this is what this film is is as guilty of as, as anything, is when they like stitch together the film through these music cues, where it's just like, it's just like going through someone's iTunes playlist. Yep. It was like Cameron Crow. 
there's no yeah like a Cameron Crowe film there's no like semblance um of sonic unity or anything like that and it like it like it plays like a minute of the songs and it fades out and then another song kicks in and then it fades out and then it kicks in and that always annoys me it really does feel like this movie was like stitched together specifically like like he there's nothing to it so you just like i'm gonna put some music to this and it'll become profound so uh as i said up the company which i cannot remember the name of for the life of me because their their drug division is um doing uh, tests on a drug which uh simulates the experience of uh falling in love for the first time and uh the way they do shit is just having these two old people sort of <laughs> dance around in a like in a uh, like living room or a set that's been done up to look like a living room and uh listening to a beach house song and they cry at each other it's so bad it's so dumb this their foreheads are touching if i'm not uh, mistaken yeah 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 that's true that's true uh they look like they're community via telepathy <laughs> uh, that's how much they, uh, close they are uh, but uh, I'll, I'll, it turns out that uh, this drug is very addictive and uh, a large portion of the uh, last 30 minutes of this film features Ewan McGregor's increasing addiction to <laughs> this stupid drug which makes it feel like you're falling up which is not an experience that I necessarily need to have in drug form I don't think like I don't I just couldn't I was like trying to be like I, I can't imagine this drug taking off at all like it's just I just can't like could it really be such a, a rush to be like, oh, I'm falling in love in a concentrated form. That feels so great. I love this feeling so much. And I'm going to use a drug to attain it versus like, I don't know. You can just like go meet someone. <laughs> like, I don't know. So, so everything about this drug didn't make sense to me. So first of all, it's a company with huge resources, right? Um, and when they put the drug to market, the way they expect its recipients to use the drug <laughs> is to take out the capsule container that has pills in it, crush the pills down to a powder with the back of a spoon, and then mix it into a drink. Why isn't it manufactured as a powder? Yeah. Like, what, what drug do you need to crush like that? <laughs> and it's supposed to only last, like, three hours, right? So for a three-hour span of time, you, you get this rush of love. Uh, you know, I can imagine that being a marketable thing. Yeah. To, you know, get that endorphin rush for a temporary period. The the way this film tries to explain how it works doesn't make any sense to me because either it's just an endorphin rush that simulates the sort of things you feel when you're in love with someone for the first time. That's fine. Or it somehow is a love potion that makes you fall in love with even someone you've never met, right? Or someone you've just met and you don't have any predisposition towards, or any feelings towards. But how does the, the drug know the target of your love? Like, what if you take it and walk down the street? Do you fall in love with everyone, or do you fall in love with someone you're attracted to? Or? I take the movie uh, Love Potion Number 9. So that, like, the pragmatics of this thing doesn't make any sense, just like the, the stuff we talked about with the yeah. algorithm about... Um, matchmaking and all that sort of stuff. And I hate to be, like, I, I really don't like to criticize the science of film, because I'm not a scientist, I don't really care that much. Like, as long as it's believable enough, like, I don't have a problem with stuff, but there's so many just, like, dumb, like, when the film offers you, like, nothing else to, like, latch onto, like, you just kind of feel like, I don't know, like, these questions become so much more, like, uh, irritating. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of beholden to the filmmakers to sell the science, and it can be completely bogus and stupid, and it can be completely fantastical and magic, as long as they, they sell it to you, and... You know, you don't have cause to pick it apart. 
or at least you're so bored by the film that you're, <laughs> you're <laughs> focusing in on little stupid detail. But like, or like, it's it's like fine if there's like something that's uh, sciencey, and they just don't exploit it at all, and then I'll be like, okay, fine, you know. But having this like dumb explanation is way worse to me, and having it be like so central to the film is also stupid. Because obviously, like, it's it only works on like sort of a metaphorical plane, right? Where it's like, oh, like having these like short love affairs, it's it's fine, like, it'll make you feel good for a bit, but what you really want is a long-term relationship, which is what the, the moral value of that, this sort of drug functions at. Because it's, like, almost like a, it's just, like, sort of like a hookup drug, right? I, I understand what you mean in terms of it serving a metaphorical purpose. I, mean, I, I don't know if, I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think it, I don't think it works, but I think it, that, that's what it's intended to be, right? Yeah, but I, I don't think this film needed additional sci-fi elements right the, the central sci-fi conceit of this film is is a humanoid robot yeah. it doesn't need a love drug <laughs> it, <laughs> no, doesn't it, doesn't. Need, it doesn't even need the algorithm stuff really it's it, it could just be this company that makes humanoid robots which would make more sense as a company yeah but even even that even the uh that humanoid robot company is like completely is ridiculous given like the amount of resources it would take to actually build a humanoid robot versus the um size of of cole or ian mcgregor cole slash ian mcgregor is like tech sort of it looks like they're just in a fucking shared workspace and like the end of the film zone gets like put to mass production right there's like a billion of them like how did they have the like do they have like a, i mean i guess they have like an off-site factor or something like that but like what i don't understand how they have the resources like to make all these robots like if their their staff is so low and maybe it's just like a corporate office but like it's such there's like 12 people that work there like i can believe it is like a stupid like dating app startup but like when you start manufacturing robots like it's a little bit ridiculous and there's a but but i guess they don't because like they have all that they store all the drugs on site right <laughs> that's, that was maybe my favorite scene where you mcgregor uh, having become addicted to uh this love drug breaks into very easily breaks into their office with this like staff like card and then just steals a bunch of drugs <laughs> which is really funny because like they have no security whatsoever it's like uh, like three boxes in like a closet like a back closet of their stupid tech headquarters like i don't know like if, they're, if they're if there's enough of a drug to make it like a widespread epidemic you'd think there'd be like a huge like warehouse where they'd be sorted or something you know and this is something else that i i mean i think this is a problem with a lot of science fiction movies which don't really say the full ramifications of their technology right but, like i feel like if you introduce like humanoid-ish robots that can be mass-produced like relatively inexpensively right i think that would completely change society yeah, that's that's the thing. So this this company's specific goals are uh, oriented around getting people to find love and fulfillment, right? In some form or another. You'd think there'd be like myriad other companies across the world who are capable of producing the same level of technology and that all these humanoid robots would already be integrated into society. Okay, you know, in fairness, they do have like random humanoid robots which would just like perform medial tasks but... but but like like significantly less advanced than what ewan mcgregor has been able to achieve yeah like it seems it seems insane this is just one love company that's a that's like cracked the formula <laughs> it's made, no one else this, has this invented consciousness <laughs> like the other robots they show are people who um for some reason they're visually 
um, demarcated as as robots, like they've got angular features on their face, so they're clearly not human. Whereas that would be the easiest thing to replicate, right? Yeah. <laughs> is just to have like a, a face mask that looks human. Um, but they're clearly just you know servile, functionary humanoid things. But the chasm between that type of robot development and what Hugh McGregor is able to achieve is massive. Yeah, yeah. That that the sort of like medial like robots are something that are like theoretically achievable with the resources that we currently have. Right? Like, you can make something that look like that. Like maybe it wouldn't function exactly as well as those do. But like, like he he has invented something that like would pass any sort of like consciousness test whatsoever. Like it's perfect. Like the, Zoe is like a perfect organism, right? And again, on the creepy incestuous thing. If if you just step back and think and think about the process of designing this, like if you were you and McGregor slash Cole and you were designing a sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> Like, the permutations of, of how it reacts in certain situations, like, you'd be across, like, all of that, and you would have had yeah. to go through so many trials, and so how would you fall in love with that? Like, it'd be, it'd be so inconceivable. I could imagine this film working if Ewan McGregor met a robot. Like, he didn't make the robot. Or so if it, they just literally took the Blade Runner approach, right? Yeah. Um, I think probably my favourite my favorite moment of this film is... Uh, this, this comes from the later section of the film in which McGregor slash Cole and Sourdozo have <laughs> temporarily split from one another because uh, McGregor can't deal with the fact that she's a robot. Yep. After he confronts that terrible fact when she gets hit by a car and he has to operate on her. <laughs> so it's like he needs to be blind to the fact that he made her in order to have a successful relationship with her. <laughs> Which is very healthy. Yeah. Very healthy. <laughs> yep. So there's a segment where both of them independently uh, using this love drug all the time sourdozo so she can feel less alone and i guess you and mcgregor for the same reasons and there's like a montage of of both of them sleeping with various different people or are they sleeping or they just like rub each other's faces or whatever they do you know they 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 like take the drug and they touch foreheads <laughs> for a while they meaningfully touch foreheads. um but to one of these people that you and mcgregor like hooks up with on a park bench <laughs> He starts talking about his <laughs> previous relationship. Yeah, with the robot he made. <laughs> he does that like he does that a bunch, doesn't he? Yeah, I just love the idea that like this person who's just like hooked up with him in the park to have this like euphoric experience with a love drug and then like never see each other again. Let's <laughs> have to listen to his garbage about <laughs> in love him not being able to get past the fact that <laughs> she's a robot. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And he made it. I think I was just so, <laughs> it's just so like out of it at that point. Well, it's it's not like it's not like it's it's sort of the thing where at, you have to step back and go, hang on, like if you're actually hearing that from him, that would <laughs> be, be like, so really <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to get high. I don't care about your robot. <laughs> um. So the second bit, I laughed. He runs into Sourdozo again, mm-hmm. uh, and they have coffee together. And uh, she leaves, and it's a bit, you know, tense. And then you and McGregor bursts out crying, uh, and I laughed at that. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny because uh, he bursts out crying just moments after, before, or moments after he said, "Like I don't really do much of anything anymore." It's like he's like you're contradicting yourself right here, buddy. I, is it when they're breaking up? It's revealed that so can't cry because they didn't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> they didn't manufacture tear ducts for her. No, no, it's like it's like really early in the film after he tells her she's a robot. It's part of her coming to terms with with that. Yeah, it's but it's uh, this is uh, sort of a separate thing. But it's it's really bizarre to me that they're like tear ducts not necessary for something to think it's human, but uh, it's sort of like vaginal lubrication. Yes. <laughs> Every other aspect of her being was like was like dealt with except for that. It's just it's just so weird that like it's like no tears, but she can have sex like a normal human. And especially like the whole the whole point of it was to be this companion that would be able to approximate human emotions. And what what's the easiest way of doing that is to literally have tears streaming down your face. Poor yeah. design. You and Ray are just a poor designer. But um, so this little nugget that she can't cry set up uh, the very end of the film. Uh, Zoe is attempting to commit suicide by going to... There's a subplot, it doesn't matter that much, involving Moreno Otto as the proprietress of a robot bordello, which is just a, um, under, like, just a generic, like, indie bar, which is funny to me. That has Christina Aguilera in it. Yes, done up in robot, uh, face, robot face. Uh, so she attempts suicide. The end of the film is you McGregor trying to revive her, but it turns out that she didn't actually commit suicide. But uh, the the best <laughs> the film and this is to be this grand romantic remote moment where Hugh McGregor overcomes his prejudices against having uh, dating or falling in love with a, a robot person, and uh, the way they convey this to to them is uh, Hugh McGregor and uh, and uh, Zoe Sourdough uh, hugging, and uh, it turns out that Zoe Sourdough can cry after all. She's developed the ability to cry. She's a real girl now. And that, that's just so funny, because it's like, how? What? <laughs> is it all robots work? Oh, my God. Uh, but, yeah, it, was definitely, it kind of made the movie worth it for that last, like, laugh moment, to be honest. God, what a bad movie. Yeah. I think at this point we're setting ourselves off to fail, right? Or we're, we're setting these these particular filmmakers up to fail before our eyes. <laughs> we're choosing these. What do you films. mean? I was totally unbiased when I chose to watch the movie so because it had gotten a bunch of bad reviews. So shouldn't we like be contrarian and, and say what's good about it? Yeah, okay, let's let's talk about the good things in it. Okay, you go first. <laughs> Alright, let me just think. Just give me some time. Give me some time. I'll just see if I wrote anything down. Yeah, I'll just give you an hour and a half to think of one good thing. Like literally the only good thing about the film is those three moments <laughs> in which I laughed because of how bad the film was. Picture a box. Just your average, everyday box. Except this one doesn't have any marks on it. It's an unmarked box. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it was going. But I'll bet you'd like to find out what's inside. Join me on Unmarked Box. Every so often on Off-Bandless. Hey, listener. Thanks for supporting us and listening to the podcast, uh, as you've done so ably up until this point. Uh, We just wanted to remind you that there's more show on the other side of this promo. And uh, it's probably at least as mediocre as the first half, so... It won't get worse, we promise. It might get worse. It might get worse, that's true. Who's to say? Like, the unpredictability is why you should definitely listen, so you can find out for yourself. What was the second film we watched? The Handmaiden. 
Yes, you get to introduce that. I can relax. So, uh, The Handmaiden is the uh, most recent film by uh, South Korean director Park Chan-wook, who is most famous for making the Vengeance trilogy, um, which, of which Old Boy is uh, very popular. Probably the most popular South Korean film in the States, at least as far as I can tell. Yeah, and it's I, I I believe it's the only film of his aside from this that I had seen previously. I'm trying to think of I had watched some of Stoker I think, but I, didn't, I don't know. But I like Old Boy enough; it's pretty enjoyable. But uh, this film is an, another film that he made that's not Old Boy. Uh, it's called The Handmaiden, uh, and it's centered around a the period when Japan occupied Korea, and about a uh, young Korean woman. Uh, his name is Suki, who, sort of in a complicated scheme to defraud a rich old man of his wealth, uh, is sent to be a handmaiden to this old man's niece, who is actually the inheritor of a of the great fortune. She really she has all the money. But let's just say that when she arrives at the manor house, uh, things are not what they seem, and uh, becomes increasingly convoluted and uh, enjoyable as time goes on. Uh, and, yeah, that's essentially the movie. So, Hugh, what did you think of the movie The Handmaiden? Um, so I'll say I liked it but didn't necessarily love it. Uh, and, and I had a similar reaction to Old Boy at the time. Like, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't as fervent in my appreciation as uh, some other people were, um, including the people I saw it with. Um, and I thought The Handmaiden would be something of a departure for Park Chan-wook from that style. I think it is somewhat. But, I mean, it, it's more like like him than I expected it to be. I thought this was going to be a, a different style of film, but a lot of his predilections are present. Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of the things that he likes to do with the way he tells a story and the style he uses to tell that story are very much present in this film. So, I mean, like, if I can make assumptions based on the two films of his I've seen, one of his favourite things to do is to set up, you know, a story that has its own momentum and tension in its own right, and then at a certain point pull the rug out from under the audience with some sort of revelation that changes everything that, that happened before and makes you look at that in a different light, which is very famous. Like, that's the whole linchpin of old boy yeah is, is that for revelation. sure for sure um, and this has more than one of those yeah but i think unlike old boy where that that sort of like plot twist is done for like i don't know it's to make the film give it like sort of it, it gives it like this like weird operatic weight right mm. well here it's done primarily because it's really fun <laughs> i guess uh and pleasurable yeah i mean I, this this film was like goofier than than i expected it to be is what i is what i say and i i really i really like that goofiness a lot you know what and uh unlike you i uh did not like i loved this film it's probably my favorite film that we've done together actually interesting uh yeah i just i don't know i mean i like erotic thrillers we've talked about and i thought this one was really well done um and i really enjoyed the the body the sort of naughty uh convoluted plot machinations uh and it's sort of it sort of is like heist film with jason which is another one of my favorite genres and i thought it to be sort of sneakily moving too and i thought that it did some interesting stuff with storytelling as a thematic element as well especially like erotic storytelling and i think 
I don't know. It just it just really worked on all level for me, pretty much. Um, one thing I wanted to say, which I'll have to qualify by the fact that obviously I've, I'm watching this on a streaming service, which in this in my case is Netflix. So obviously there's some com- compression involved before that reaches me, but it has a slight washed out digital look. I didn't I didn't get that. Which to me doesn't necessarily suit the period that it's trying to evoke that well. Like it, 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 I don't know. There's something about that digital look which, which doesn't always work so well in historical dramas, and it could be to do with the color grading or whatever it is. But it, it seems to be lacking the dynamic range of, of celluloid, where you get that true darkness in the blacks. Yeah. I mean, I don't. It doesn't like make it a worse film by any stretch or anything like that. But that was just something I, I picked up on. Um, it definitely has that, that look that is clearly digital. I've seen way fewer films on film than, than have been shot on Hollywood. Obviously, I grew up in a era and have watched a lot more digital films than you have. So maybe it's just something that I'm more accustomed to. Like I don't really notice the differences as much. The thing with digital, especially now, is that I mean, it, it can easily compete with celluloid, and there there can be times where you don't even necessarily notice the difference. It's um, but there, there's certainly certain films where you can clearly tell it's been shot on digital. Yeah, for sure. Or it's been significantly, like, color-graded or something in post-production, and it has a, a certain weird, um, slightly artificial look. Yeah, I didn't... I just, again, I just didn't notice. But, I mean, I don't know, I feel like the artificiality is something that he's, like, trying to bring to this, right? Hmm. I, bet, I, I think you could make an argument it may have been somewhat intentional, <laughs> because, like... The, uh... the, the the setting itself is inherently artificial because it's the 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 person who owns the mansion or, or the estate has like combined his idea of a, a Japanese traditional house mm-hmm. with a European traditional well, house, British specifically, British house in this in this hybrid that doesn't reflect any actual historical no. reality. Yeah, so it's it already has that level of artifice. Yeah, yeah. So, and there's all sorts of stuff of like. People going into stories and uh, imagination and stuff like that, like like um, uh, the the film itself, like seamlessly and without warning, like going into fantasies and stuff. It's definitely it's definitely an enjoyable film. I'd say that much. What did you think of the um, sex scenes? I tend to dislike sex scenes where I'm like, that looks uncomfortable to film. And I feel like I can tell I can tell if a sex scene is working for me if I don't think that, and I didn't think that during any of the sex scenes in this film. So, but obviously they're incredibly explicit. I thought I actually thought. That. Oh really? Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking about like I wonder what this was like to film. It must have been bizarre to to shoot that. Like they they're definitely. I mean, you can't escape from the fact that they're male gaze type sex sex scenes because it's it's a male director but it's so goofy that it almost works as a parody of itself (laughs) i agree in those scenes especially when it like uh interpolates like um the like historical erotica (laughs) yes yes and the and the culmination of the film essentially being um musical scissoring is yeah it's it's great nice (laughs) the scene where she's like where um uh, the the sort of um, the lady in waiting is is like <laughs> lifted up on a tummy is maybe my favorite thing. <laughs> it's like that was a scene where I was like that must have been uncomfortable to film because <laughs> like Jesus Christ. <laughs> but yeah, and sometimes I wonder if I'm just like a prude and that's why I have problems with <laughs> sex scenes. 
but obviously, like, you want them, you want to not have exploitative, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, it's like, it's hard to judge sometimes, where it's like, oh, this is obviously something that, like, you know, someone was totally fine with shooting, <laughs> it's probably the case, right, I mean. Well, I don't know, like, that's what I always, that's what I always think about that sometimes distracts me from it, is like, this is probably like, I don't know, like, who knows. Uh, I'll save anything else to say about The Handmaiden. I think you both agree, very pleasurable film, but one that I think its pleasures are not necessarily, they don't really come through as much in that conversation. It's such a film that is enjoyable through watching, right? Versus, like, having a conversation about it. But I guess you can talk about some of, like, the, the thematic stuff. Yeah, I mean, the the enjoyment of the film is, is, is how it unfolds and the tricks it plays with you and, and how you go along with that. And, and I think the silliness of it. It's good not to know a great deal about it beforehand. Yeah, I agree um, And I, I certainly, like went into this film with, with a very different expectation for some reason. Well, what were you thinking? You think it'd be more like stayed and... Yeah, I thought it was more like, like, a, like a, a slower-paced sort of costume drama. No, I kind of knew it was, like, sort of delirious. I, I, I obviously must have, like, skim-read some of the positive reviews when it came out and just had a different impression of it for some reason. Like, I thought it was, like, a stately erotic thriller as opposed to, yeah, a Park Chan look film, essentially. Could you my favourite joke of the entire film? Hmm... So, um, uh, the, one of the sort of, like, central images that the film returns to is, um, one of the main characters, uh, giving out erotic readings, right? And there's a great, to, like, an audience of, like, rich, uh, I guess they're Japanese businessmen. And, uh, my favorite one was that there's a scene where she's doing this reading of, like, a sort of, uh, Marquis de Sade-esque Japanese writer, um... And it cuts to the audience, and there's just a guy who, like, very conspicuously puts his hat over his crotch. <laughs> that was really funny. And it's like, yeah, you're trying to cover your boner with your hat. So, there you go. Uh, obviously the highlight of cinema. But yeah, I thought this film was great. It's obviously very, it's very self-reflexive, too, in a lot of ways. In both, like, the way it draws attention to the fact that characters are looking at each other. Um... In like sort of a Hitchcocky way, I guess, and in the way it incorporates like eroticism and erotica into the the text of the film, as well. And I was kind of, I was actually kind of like really moved by the scene where the uh, the count, a oh, spoiler alert right here, uh, meets his end. Like to to me, that seemed like Pachon Wook sort of indulging in the style he's he's obviously explored in previous films. Yeah, with that type of torture scene. I'm yeah. not sure if that necessarily was warranted here i feel like it no i feel like it kind of it worked in that like the the sort of threat of that is always present in the film right so it's i mean i guess it's like a demonstration of like what it actually entails <laughs> i love that there's just like an octopus like hanging out of the background yeah i like the octopus actually the, the fact that there was actually an octopus yeah. um but uh i don't know i just enjoyed not specific not so much like the, the torture scenes were fine i mean they're enjoyable enough you know like maybe like half a boner. The <laughs> semi. Um, I just like that. I like the sequence where he's like dying, and like it just has those like flashbacks to stuff he's experienced, and it, like slows on images and stuff. I'm always a sucker for that sort of thing. So mm. there you go. I found it to be kind of moving actually, and I really enjoyed the count as a character in general. He's such a scumbag, but uh, he takes such pleasure in being one, you know. And I'm always I'm always a fan of that type of character. I really like the image of the uncle, which is, like, his, his ink-stained tongue. He has this, like, image of, like, moral rot, you know? I bet there's a lot you could read into, like, the, 
the specific like history it plays with too, and like the uh, issues of like Korean identity that are brought up as well. Um, but obviously, I don't think either of us are necessarily equipped with the historical and cultural background to really <laughs> delve into those questions. I mean, the main thing that, that's built into the premise is that the uncle betrayed Korea during the initial stages of the occupation, and he's moved to Japan and and um, eventually obtained Japanese citizenship. And he's essentially trying to assimilate himself within Japanese society. Yeah. I mean, we haven't mentioned the fact that it is actually based or loosely inspired by a novel by Sarah Waters, which is set in, like, Victorian Britain. Yeah, and I can sort of see the affinities between, like, the repression there and the repression that was present in Korea during the time. So I feel like that sort of um, sexual oppression... And, and the surface of formality... And hierarchy and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think I think it's a pretty pretty good match. <laughs> I really I think my favorite piece of the entire movie was uh, the part where the the uh, they destroy the books. And it's like this great visual symbol of like the need to like sometimes destroy the symbols of the past in order to like escape from the like repression and almost like castrated effects of like uh, a culture. And using using the blood red paint. Yeah. Ink. Blood reading to stay in the, yeah, the books. Yeah, that's good. Irreparably, yeah. It's an enjoyable, good film. Definitely a recommend for me. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 definitely worth watching. Uh, and now we're gonna take a break. So go use the bathroom. <sighs> all right. <laughs> I got it all out. <laughs> Stop turning you. Well, shall we finish uh, doing our podcast before my computer dies? Well, I've literally watched one other film, aside from the ones we've already discussed, and that was Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, uh, which is a film I've always been meaning to revisit because I liked some elements of it when I first watched it, but I didn't think it was a complete success, and I did wonder what I would think of it um, all these years later after having seen some of Edgar Wright's other works and maybe determine how it fits within his canon. I would have liked the film to have done a better job in maybe challenging its Manic Pitsky Dream Girl <laughs> central romance business. Um, I mean, there's, I guess, the gestures towards it at certain points, and maybe the, the comic explores that in, in greater detail. But I think it's a little bit shallow on that front. Um, the main problem I, I think I, I had when I first watched it was I thought the, the conceit of the seven evil exes, which divides the film into seven um, set pieces or six set pieces, really, was a little bit much. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's I think maybe the pleasure of the film is, is as something that you might stumble upon if you're switching channels which is something that no one does anymore but like maybe switching oh. streaming services <laughs> so if you don't if you have an experience that no one has because it's impossible please do that yeah but i mean like it does seem suited to like you, you come across it and you're like oh scott pilgrim's just started i'll stick this out it can be really enjoyable in that context of looking forward to each particular set piece and and, and that that kind of thing edgar wright's best work is hot fuzz but yeah that's all i wanted to say on that particular film yeah i think i agree with you um how about you what did you watch well i watched another one of your favorite films which movie that came out last year which i purchased specifically because i thought it would look good on my new television <laughs> called <laughs> are you okay <laughs> are you okay sorry i just feel i feel 
<laughs> the taste of bile in the back of my throat. Because you're you're so happy that I'm talking about this. <laughs> God, this could be the biggest uh, disagreement that we've ever had. This is the biggest disagreement we've ever had about a movie. Which is just called <laughs> Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> Key sound effect. I'll do the folly way thing. It's all right. Uh, I like this movie even more the second time I've seen it now. Really? Yeah. I was kind of afraid watching it and being like, maybe he was right and then I'm going to hate this, but uh, I enjoyed it a lot. He was right. <laughs> no. You were right. <laughs> no, uh, just you know, it's just it works. I don't know, it's great. I don't know if I need to say anything more than that. It's been a phone that's been talked to death. Um, does it really enjoy it? Yeah, I think it's pretty great. There's some, so it doesn't work in it, obviously, as in any movie, but uh, like all of it, <laughs> shut up. And I think I think the score is uh, noticeably weak. It's terrible in the context of the first film, which was which has such a magnificence. Yeah, whatever. But the other elements of the movie more than compensate for it, that, that flaw. I think there's, I don't know, um, it's, it's a really interesting and intriguing world, and does really interesting and intriguing things in it. And obviously the first Blade Runner is one of my favorite films. Um, but uh, I, I like the contrast that uh, Denis Villeneuve creates between the original film which is obviously notable between the original film which is <laughs> good and the film which is bad <laughs> uh, you know what it's fine that you don't like it uh, but allow me to like it <laughs> uh, anyway I like the visual differences where this film is stark and foreboding where the original is dense with dense and foreboding I guess um and I don't know. I think I think if there were if there had to be a Blade Runner sequel, I can't imagine one that's better than this one. Even if Blade Runner, you de- can't imagine one that's better than this one. Up. Jesus Christ! Right. Even if Blade Runner definitely did not need a sequel, and in some ways I think this movie is completely unnecessary. It definitely did not. Need a sequel. I think it's enjoyable nonetheless. Well, I will continue to like Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and you can go fuck yourself. Uh, and scene. Nancy. That was a great little sketch. And now you can reveal that how much you love Blade Runner 2049. Why did we not do Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again? Because I don't want to see it. Fuck you. Fuck you. Okay, Homophobe. let me finish. Homophobe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, the only other movie I watched is The Tale of Zadoichi Continues. Just the second Zadoichi film. Um, which is only 70 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, it's sort of like the first film, but short, and it introduces um, the uh, titular Lone Wolf from the Lone Wolf and Cub series as Zadoichi's brother because they were brothers in real life. The actors? Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yep. And now they're both dead. Um, yep. So I don't know if I have anything else to say. So probably watch that movie. It's got some good stuff. Riverdale. We did uh, we should talk about Riverdale briefly. <laughs> I've, I've already watched the entire first season. I'm on the second season now. I'm looking forward to resuming watching after we finish this podcast. <laughs> really? The second season is, like, way better, too. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. It gets, like, way... It gets way campier and crazier. What do you think of Riverdale, Hugh? You're going to tell me why you like this type of show? Well, I, like... I definitely have an affinity for, for soap operas. Like, there was a time when um, I would actually catch 
either the bold and beautiful or young and restless. It's hard to know which one I was catching before I would go to work at certain points. And even just like sitting down and watching one episode, you do get sucked into the machinations of the plots. And I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a genuine craft to do that well. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and it's a really tricky balance to get the, I don't know, there's a, there's a tonal balance that you need to achieve when you're juggling all these different relationships and shocking events and all that sort of stuff. And you don't want it to go too far into a, a downer direction where everything gets too sad and bad for the characters. And you don't want it to be all Sundays and, and happiness and sunshine for the characters either. So there is like, there's, there's a definite craft and enjoyment um, to be had with these things. I can't imagine a worse fate than being a character on a soap opera. Um, and I even think one of the, uh, I'm not sure if you actually watched it, but one of the things I told you to watch as part of our ex- uh, cultural exchange. This <laughs> cultural exchange being that I'm watching two American TV shows. <laughs> was, the, was the TV show Life As We Know It, which I think did a really good job of crafting those soap opera type plots. Uh-huh. Which is why it only lived for one season. But achieving that that balance, yeah. And then it got cancelled. Um, <clears throat> but it's actually very similar to Riverdale. I think Riverdale does a pretty good job of it so far. I think I think I enjoy Riverdale more by dint of it being a weird Archie Comics property, to be honest. So I don't know if we can get into like was you know it is easily. Wait, I need to. I need to. I only have two percent left on my computer. All right. So I'm gonna. We can talk about Riverdale next time. Or maybe we could just do a Riverdale special. <laughs> I'm 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 hooked now. I'll watch it all. <laughs> okay, I've already watched a significant portion of it, so. Uh, but I'm gonna stop and then save this podcast and just get deleted by my computer shutting off. <laughs> Alright. So goodbye for now. See you next time for Mission Impossible, Fallout and Extinction. So you can look forward to if you ever listen to this episode back. The amazing vomit sound effects yeah, yeah, will sure accompany be, your yeah. discussion of and the, and the poop, poop sound effects too. Yeah. All right. All right. Talk to you later.